You are now listening to the March 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name When the sun's shining down on me When the world's all as it should be Blessed be your name Blessed be your name On the road marked with suffering Though there's pain in the offering Blessed be your name
Hello, everyone. My name is Don Chung, and I'm your host of the program series Christianese 101. Continuing with last week's topic, we'll discuss regarding a group of people that we often see in the Bible. Today, we'll learn about priest. You've heard this word many times in the Bible or during a sermon, right? The funny thing is, we don't get a good impression when we hear the word priest. It could be due to the fact that the priest and Jesus had confrontations and they were scolded from their mistakes in the Old Testament. However, they are not a bad group of people. Rather, they are in charge of very important positions. Priest means a person in charge of sacrifices. In Hebrew, it is Kohen, which means someone who meditates between God and human. In other words, they offered sacrifices and served God instead of others who could not be in the presence of God due to their sin. Who can become priests? Out of the twelve tribes of Judah, Only people in a tribe called the Levi tribe could become priests. Unlike the other eleven tribes, they were distinguished by God to only serve God in the temple. However, not all members of the Levi tribe would become priests. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 3, it says, You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. That they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. The people that can become priests from the Levi tribes are Moses' brother, Aaron's descendants. There are three big duties of a priest. First, they were to administer the sanctuary and the altar set in front of God to take charge of the offerings. Second, was to teach the law of God to the people. Third, They were in charge of asking for God's will for the people. However, they had other side duties such as to direct a trial during a lawsuit and to blow the trumpet or carry the Ark of a Covenant during times of war or feasts. Not all priests are the same. There is a title called the High Priest Among the Priests. Generally, the Levites served in the temple. Among the Levites, The descendants of Aaron became priests and performed sacrificial offerings. Among these priests, a person that would go into the holy place once a year to forgive the sins of the people is known as the high priest. Entering the holy place where God is present was a hard task. Not just anyone could go in. Priests were a group of people that were sanctified among the Israelites. Therefore, they are required to live more holy than ordinary people. I will now read Leviticus chapter 21, verse 4. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. However, the priests who were supposed to be so holy lost their appearance. Was confronted with Jesus at various moments. For that reason, a negative image comes to mind when we hear that word. However, the original appearance of the priest is holy, who played an important role in connecting people to God. We do have good news. 
Through the coming of Jesus, the high priest, he himself became a sacrifice on behalf of our sin of all mankind. And God received that sacrifice and gave remission of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. So now we can boldly be in the presence of God. Not only that, we too became priests. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9-10, through 10, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, we do not have to confess our sins to the priest, but can pray before God and have personal fellowship with him. This is because Jesus made us priests through his blood. I pray that you and I will thank God for his great love, for making us, the sinners, become priests, and to move forward in his presence in the next week. Have a blessed week, and I look forward to meeting with you again next week for our program series, Christianese 101. Goodbye!
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Well, we continue our lesson on resisting temptation today. This is part two of two, and this teaching is from the series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. For those of you who are new to the podcast, The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are in the addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, porn addiction is a series of predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. And when you know where you are inside your habit, it's then, when you've got a map you can follow, then you can choose to exit. You can flee. You do have a choice. You don't have to stay stuck, I promise you. The good news is that there are multiple ways to exit the spiral. So in today's lesson, you're going to grab a lot of information here, lots of key points for practical use. So uh, you may want to grab your Bible, your notebook, and have your pen ready for this lesson. In this podcast, you're going to learn three things. Number one, how resistance can and will work against you. Number two, how resistance can be in complete opposition to what you're trying to achieve in purity. And number three, how extended resistance only intensifies the pleasure of pornography. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is titled, The Irony of Resisting Porn. So key point number one, resistance is where we think the real game is won or lost. We think the godlier we are, the better we'll be at resistance. And this is a lie. The trigger is not the, this trigger is not the only point of win or defeat here. Each one of these triggers, we get to exit out a minimum of 12. But a lot of us think, oh, this resistance thing, this is where I have to, I have to call my partner now. No, 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 no. I would suggest to you it's right here. This is because when the further you get down into the spiral, the harder it's going to be. Uh, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, right? The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So and that's why that devotional time is so important because he is preparing you for today's test inside that. Because this is not the testing ground here. I mean, it is, but this is not where you're going to resist him. Once again, had me like this and I literally pulled him aside, I could use his momentum and just think of that as praying, fleeing, and confessing. Key point number two, extended resistance only intensifies the pleasure. Extended resistance only intensifies the pleasure. So I I don't know about you guys, the longest I could resist my sin seemed to only be about a month at a time. 
And when I finally gave in to the pleasure of my sin, the pleasure was more intense than ever before. Because I was able to white knuckle this, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this by myself, right? And then when I finally gave in to the pleasure of sin, it was heightened. Because I was able to abstain for it, from it for a month at a time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That you are actually, you're actually creating uh, a more powerful pleasure by resisting something but resisting in a non-biblical way. So key point number three, extended resistance relates to loneliness. Extended resistance relates to loneliness. So why are you standing firm by yourself? And extended resistance means that you are doing this by yourself. If you're caught right here and you're trying to do it and you're doing, you're trying to be a good Christian. I'm not sure if there is such a good thing as either you're a Christian or you're not, right? But the reality is that you're trying to do this alone. So key point number four is loneliness breeds ignorance. Loneliness breeds ignorance. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a right that there's a way that seems right. Oh, uh, until I actually talk to another godly man, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, that's really dumb." Especially when we get into the next trigger, trigger number five, this idea of of uh, all the excuses we give ourselves, right? So flip the page to Proverbs twelve, verse fifteen. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. Now, there is good news in all that. The good news is in James 1, 5, where the Apostle James says, if you need wisdom, ask God. He's, he's willing to give it to you, and He's not going to rebuke you for asking. So James 1, 5 is saying, God is not going to hold your sins against you. He doesn't ask why you didn't come to Him sooner, nor does He bring your sin up from your past. If you've repented, He will indeed forget about your sins. He will cast them as far as the east is from the west. This idea of, he's not going to say, remember when you did that two years ago? He doesn't play that game. He forget. we play that game. And the people around us play that game, but God doesn't play that game. When we are living inside this spiral, I would say that we haven't really lived at all. I would say that we're only surviving from day to day. Because sin will soon demand a payment sooner rather than later for all of our rebellion against God and His people. Because sin always brings forth spiritual, emotional, and physical death. Um, Trigger number five, there comes a time in your journey when you must admit to yourself and others that you can't resist the pleasure of your sin comes a time in your journey where you must admit to yourself and others that you can't resist the pleasure of your sin. So ultimately, you are, you are where you are in life because the pleasure of your sin has become your master. It's mastered your lifestyle. It's mastered you. And it's interesting that the word Lord means master. It means ruler or one who commands. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 6. 24. 
No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, Jesus is talking about money in this context, but we could easily replace the word money for pornography or sexual sin. But the moral truth remains the same, right? You either have Jesus as your master or you don't. Now, resistance, it's not all bad. It can be a gift from God. Rather than continuing to stay in in the spiral, you can move through the resistance by exiting that spiral, by fleeing confession and prayer. And when you guys learn how to resist it properly, once again, you're going to be learning how to build that spiritual muscle. Key point number six, this is the irony of sin. If resistance intensifies the pleasure of sin, then resistance has now become an enemy to your purity. If resistance intensifies the pleasure of sin, if I've got my eyes on the sin and I'm white knuckling this and I'm keeping everything to myself and I'm alone and I don't call, pray, or confess, resistance has now become an enemy to the purity. Why? Because of key point number seven. Resistance is now working against you because you're focused on your sin rather than your savior. Key point number eight, resistance is now in opposition to the very thing that you're trying to achieve. Why is that? Because you've learned how to increase the pleasure, the very thing that you can't control. And this ultimately throws me down the next layer of the spiral to rationalization, unless I choose to exit the spiral. Seeing our porn addiction devastate our wife and our kids and our job, well, that changes everything. And this is where pornography loses its fun. It's the intersection of fantasy and reality. And for a lot of us, we tend to feel like, well, it's, it's lost its fun a long time ago, but yet we continue to go around and down the spiral. And we resist, but it feels like it just doesn't do any good, doesn't it? And hopefully you've learned why inside this podcast. We can and we will resist the temptation when it's staring us in our face, but not in the way that we think. You know, God's ways are just so much higher than ours. And the training ground for this trigger of resistance is not when the temptation is staring us in in the face. But rather, it's in the consistency of showing up in our devotional time every single morning before we start our day. But let me ask you this. How many times have you said to yourself, you know, I wish God would take away this temptation. I just wish he would take it away. Dozens, hundreds. Have you asked that question even like thousands of times over the years or decades? Well, there is one way to curb those temptations from even reaching the screens of your digital devices, and that's by protecting everything with covenant eyes. I've personally used covenant eyes accountability filtering software for years, and it allows me to avoid exposing myself and my family and my friends from the evils of pornography. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, you're invited to my weekly community group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives, single, divorced, everyone is welcome. You are invited to listen to God with us 
every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can rate this show on iTunes and email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and look forward to our time again.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Doing Justice in Mercy, based on Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 14. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. We're doing it this week partly because it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus Christ was declared the king. He rode into Jerusalem. And in the Bible, kings, the primary number one thing that kings were always to do was administer justice. And uh, this morning we're going to take a look at how Jesus Christ does fulfill justice and do justice in the world. Uh, Also next week we have the uh, Easter sacrificial offering, which we do every year. That is also an offering just to do justice. They care for the needs of the poor and the marginalized in the city. Uh, it's also true that when we talk in the Rise Campaign, we talk about a future in which we plant many more churches in the city than we've ever seen before. Those churches, according to the plan, it's part of what's called the project or the Rise Campaign project, is we are going to be uh, training and equipping those churches to, to do in each of their neighborhoods justice, reaching out to the people who are marginalized and people of need, with needs in their, in their neighborhoods. So what is this? word justice. This passage we just read is long, but it's also one of the key passages in the Bible about this. When we take a look at this, we're going to learn about the startling importance, and I'm warning you, the startling importance of justice. Secondly, the fulsome nature of justice. And then thirdly, how we get the ability to do justice in the world. The startling importance, the fulsome nature, and where you get the ability to do justice in the world. First of all, the startling importance. Verse 2 gives you a description of a very religious and ethical group of people. Day after day they seek me out, God says about them. The word seek out is a Hebrewism for, it's a Braism for uh, worship and religious observance. These people fast, for example. Bible, the law of Moses required that they would fast on Yom Kippur. So we're assuming They fasted because of the Day of Atonement. Uh, They're very diligent in their religious observances. They get to temple on the Sabbath day and they give their sacrifices. They're very religious people. Not only that, it says day after day they do this. This isn't just a burst of enthusiasm. They're sustained in their faithfulness to religious observance. It also says they know my ways. They want to be a nation that does right. They have not forsaken the commands of our God. So these are people who are also trying to be ethical, not just religious very moral, very ethical. And it even says, they seem eager. So there's a passion. So here you have a very religious group of people. You have a very, they seem passionate about God's commands. They're trying to obey him. They're trying to be moral. They fast, they pray, they do all this. The startling thing, of course, is in verse one. God says to Isaiah, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sin." And verse three, when they hear this, say, what? We we fasted and you have not seen it? We've humbled ourselves? We do all this stuff? You're not answering our prayers? You're condemning us for rebellion? What's going on? And God gives a hint at what's going on in verse three. He says, you know, you, you knock off on the Sabbath and you fast and pray, but you exploit your workers. You make them work on the Sabbath. But then down verse six, he comes right in. This is the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. Now, here's what he's saying. 
You say you know me, but if you don't care about the poor, you don't really. You say you have a relationship with me, a living, vital relationship with me, but if you don't care about the oppressed and the needy, you actually don't have that relationship with me. Now, Isaiah, and they're startled, and I would think that you are startled. In fact, when I look and see what it's saying, every time I get startled. This is not just a one-off chapter here. Proverbs 14, 31 says, if you give to the Lord, pardon me, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 19, 17 says, if you give a gift to the poor, you actually give a gift to the Lord. What's going on here? Something really radical, especially in ancient times. God is identifying with the people at the bottom of the ladder. You know, if somebody asks me, how do you want to be introduced? I will either say, introduce me as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church or introduce me as husband and father because those are the main things I do in the world. Basically, that's essentially what I'm about. I do other things, but that's the main things I do. So if you're going to introduce me as this is what I do, do you know how often God introduces himself as, for example, in uh, Psalm 68, where he says, I am a defender, a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows? Over and over again, he identifies with the poor. He even introduces himself. I'm the God of the poor. I'm the father to the orphan. I am a defender. I'm a husband to the widow. I defend those people. Now, that's God's way of saying one of the main things he's doing in the world is he's standing with the vulnerable groups, the groups that are vulnerable economically and politically. They don't have power. They don't have economic resources. And that's what he does. If you want to understand how unique this is, Francis Anderson, who wrote a commentary on the book of Job. I mean, there's other passages just to let you know. For example, Zechariah 7. This is a parallel passage to Isaiah 58. Listen, God says, when you fasted and mourned, was it really for me? Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, or the poor. I mean, that's almost identical to Isaiah 58. You're fasting, you're praying, you're... But here's the fast I choose. You're religious. Well, here's the religion I want. Don't oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, the immigrant, the refugee, or the poor. And Isaiah 1, earlier in this book, God says, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. When you spread your hands to pray, I'm going to hide my eyes. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, I have other passages, like in the book of Job, when God is, Job is suffering, and he says to God, God, I'm living the way you want me to live, and then he goes in Job 29 in verse chapter 31, he explains the kind of life that God wants. He says, I'm living this life, and it is filled with social justice. He says, if I looked at all of my possessions, this is Job now, if I looked at all my possessions as if they belonged to me and I didn't share them with the poor, if I didn't defend the widow in court, the people that don't have money, if I didn't do that, he said that that would be a sin that should be judged. So, and what Francis Anderson, who is the commentary writer on the book of Job, I've never forgot what he said. He says, do you realize how unique this is? In the rest of the world, in all other ancient cultures of the time, God identified with the people at the top, never the people at the bottom. In every other country, the gods were identified with the people at the top. Why? Well, because other religions were religions of good works. 
If you lived a good enough life and you showed the God enough religious observance, the gods would bless you. So the people at the top, by definition, were the people that the gods loved the most. Otherwise, they wouldn't be at the top. And, And therefore, the kings and the priests and the generals... They were the ones who represented God, and they were the ones who God, the gods identified with. And if you went against the king, you went against the gods. And if you went the will of the gods, you went to, and asked the king. And that's the reason why when Naaman, the Syrian general in 2 Kings chapter 5, when Naaman, who has leprosy, hears that there's a prophet in Israel, Elisha, who could heal him, what does he do? He takes a bunch of money, And he takes a bunch of recommendations from his own king. And he goes to the king of Israel and he says, here, you know, command the prophet to heal me. Here's the money. And remember, the king of Israel rips his clothes in grief. And he says, our God doesn't work that way. (laughs) Our God is not in bed with power. Our God doesn't identify with the people at the top. He judges the people at the top. I cannot just, as the king, tell the prophet or tell the prophets of God what to do. In fact, do you realize how crazy this is? When God says, I, he introduces himself. I stand with the widow. In a male-dominated society, God says, I'm on the side of the poor woman. I stand with the alien in a tribal, everything is a matter of blood and tribe and all that. In a tribal uh, world, God says, I stand on the side of the racial outsider who's in your midst. I stand on the side of the poor. I stand on the side of the poor widow. There there wasn't any other nation on earth that had a God like that. And maybe there's still not. Because the God of the Bible identifies with the poor. Now, what does that mean? Let's go take it back. Here's what he said. He's saying this in Zechariah. He's saying this in Isaiah. You say, well, does it say it in the New Testament? Yeah. In the New Testament, when Jesus Christ denounces the Pharisees, he says, you tithe, mint, and cumin. You tithe every little thing. You're, you're very careful with your religious observances. But he says, you deny justice and the love of God, and you devour widows' houses. You exploit the powerless in order to accrue more wealth for yourself. In fact, Jesus is the one who also said, that he has this parable in which he's looking at, he says, on Judgment Day, there's going to be two different groups of people. I'm going to look at one and I'm going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was uh, naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. I was in prison and you visited me. And he's going to see another group. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And they're both going to say, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you in these situations? And Jesus says, When you did it or you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it or you did not do it to me. God identifies with the people at the bottom of the ladder. And he says, if you do not in any way, if you do not care about them, if you are not in any way dedicated to them as well, then you may think you know me, but you don't. You may think you've experienced my grace, but you haven't. You may think you have a vital relationship with me, but you don't. Social justice, concern for social justice, and a life of service to the poor is an inevitable sign of true faith according to the Bible. Are you startled? I warned you. And by the way, if you are out there and you have rejected Christianity, basically, you said, ah, I'm not a Christian. Did you know that this is what was at the heart of it when you rejected it? And 
if you have embraced Christianity and you say, oh, I'm a Christian, did you know that this was at the heart of it? Hmm? Okay, so there's the startling importance of justice. Now, secondly, we need to look at something else. And then secondly, we have to look at the fulsome nature of justice. And the reason I say the fulsome nature is that some years ago I read a book by uh, Michael Sandel, who teaches at Harvard philosophy, political philosophy, and he teaches a course called Justice. It's just a basic course for undergraduates. And he's written a book based on the course called Justice, uh, What's the Right Thing to Do? And it's it's a brilliant book in many ways, but the main thing he points out is that in our society, we have no consensus about what justice is. He points out there's at least three different views of justice, and the reason why political parties, the reason why judges, the reason why, you know, political candidates, the reason why everybody thinks they're on the side of justice and yet everybody's disagreeing with everybody else is because actually there's no consensus about how to define justice. And one of the things that was interesting to me as I read the book as a teacher of the Bible was that when he went through and talked about the different political theories of justice that are out there, they're very narrow. You know, one is only about equal rights, one is only about this, one is only about that. And I realized what I knew about what the Bible says about justice is the Bible's understanding of justice is rather fulsome and actually includes them all. So without actually doing any more work on that, just, I'm not going to try to draw any more lines. Let me just point out three things that right here you can see that the Bible means when it talks about justice. By the way, the the Hebrew word for justice that keeps coming up in all these places, you know, in Zechariah 7, when it says, don't fast, if you don't do justice, the word is mishpat. But that word means at least three things, I think. The first thing is it means equal treatment. Or another way to put it is racial and social equity. So for example, I mean, you can go all through the Bible. Uh, Leviticus 24, 22 says, you are to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born. That's fascinating. You must have the same law for the foreigner as the native born. I mean, you can go to the Code of Hammurabi, you can go to other, you know, legal codes of the time. There's nothing like this. Here's a person of a different race. Here's a person of a different culture. Here's a person probably of a different religion. They come on into Israel. You must not treat them differently. The law is the law. You might say, well, of course, that's common sense. It wasn't then. Where do you think you got your common sense? Came from this. The Bible's also, for example, filled with condemnations of anyone who offers and takes a bribe. And I know New York City's economy kind of works on the basis of this, but it doesn't matter. This, it's, God is constantly cursing people who give and take bribes. Why? Because the poor can't afford bribes. And because the poor can't afford to give bribes, it's inequality. But even here, by the way, it's in here, verse 7, the translation masks it a little bit. It says, uh, what is doing justice? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, get back to that, and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, uh, to clothe them, to turn, and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? What commentators have always pointed out is so interesting is that word for wanderer is a word for alien immigrant. It's a refugee. It's not just a traveler, not just a poor person who needs a night to stay. You know, somebody. It's talking about a person, it's a refugee, it's an alien, it's a person from another race. But if you look carefully at the end of the sentence, it says, you must not turn away from your own flesh and blood. That's a radical statement that says that all people of all races are your own flesh and blood. Other races are not other species. We're all the human race. It goes back to Genesis 9 where God says, 
If anyone sheds the blood of any other human being, I will require that blood of them. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God. And so the first aspect of justice is, is equal treatment, equity, social and racial equity. That's number one, but that's not all. Number two, the second aspect of justice you can see is special concern for the vulnerable populations. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke? What's that mean? Uh, set the oppressed free, the hungry, the poor wanderer, the naked to clothe them. In Zechariah, it says, I've mentioned that, the parallel passage, it's a, it lists uh, four groups of people that, uh, I mean, I think Nicholas Wolderstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable that are listed a lot in the Old Testament. The quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, which means women who are, do, are not politically and economically protected. Orphans, children, disadvantaged children. Immigrants, the poor. The quartet of the vulnerable. Now here's what, listen carefully and don't hit me. Don't throw anything, please. All right. That's why we took all your rotten tomatoes on the way in because of the sermon today. So, Many people in America believe that justice is equal treatment, but not as many people believe this, and that is that some groups need more than equal treatment. They need a special concern. See, why is it that God says in Psalm 31, verse 8, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Speak up for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Why do you have to do that? Because they can't speak up for themselves. The rich don't need you to speak up for them. See? People who have got means don't need you to speak up for them, but these people do, which means you're not just treating everybody equally. You're showing special concern for the oppressed, the poor, the disadvantaged child. You see that? It's calling for you to do something special there. So not only A, is justice mean equal treatment? B, it means special concern for vulnerable populations. Uh, advocacy, not just charity. Advocacy, speak up. That's what it says. So it's a command. Then thirdly, generosity. Do you not see the implication? Verse 6 says, loose the chains of injustice, do justice. And then it says, share, share. Share your resources with the people who've got less. What's the implication there? Verse 7 is not just charity, it's justice. Americans, very individualistic. And we believe, yeah, it would be good if you helped people who are poor, but it's my choice. I, don't, I have no obligation to do that. If I do it, it's, it's just charity. If I don't do it, eh, maybe I should do it. I'm not obligated to do it. Well, when you say I'm not obligated to help the poor, that doesn't do justice to the biblical language. That's all I can tell you. There's too many places. The book of Job, Job 31. Job says, if I treated my wealth as if it was my own and I didn't share it with the needy, that would be a sin. And here's what's going on, everybody. God does not look at your wealth the way you do. You think you earned it, basically. You know, I had a few breaks, but basically I earned it. God said, the other way around, <laughs> it's basically I gave it to you. You did some work for it, but basically I gave it to you. God just turns that around. You say, what do you mean? I worked hard for it. Okay, God says, excuse me. I decided what century for you to be born in. I decided who your family was, what your circumstances were. 95% of what you are, essentially I chose. And you did, you did fine with it. But the point is, the goods and the assets and the opportunities of this world are not 
equitably distributed because it's a broken world. It's a world, the Bible says, broken by sin. Quick example. In this city, there are people, there are kids growing up. In fact, in many of the cities of this country, just this country, there's kids growing up that because of the unstable family lives, because of the under-resourced educational institutions they're in, because of the uh, kind of toxic peer social environment they're in, they're, by the time they're 15 years old, they're kind of like functionally illiterate. And they're almost, almost permanently pushed out of the job market in our, in our whole economic system. And the liberals say, well, that's because of economic inequality. And the conservatives say that's because of the, uh, the you know, family breakdown. But nobody, 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 nobody says it's the kid's fault. Nobody says the seven-year-old should have said, I need to move into a better school district. Nobody thinks the three-year-old should have said, I got to get some parents who read to me. It wasn't their fault. And yet, depending on where you're born in this city, you're going to have a thousand times better chance of economic and social and psychological flourishing than if you're born in another place in the city. Why? Because that just proves that there is an inequitable distribution of assets in this world. And if you have been assigned more of them, it is unjust if you do not share them with those who have got less. Do you see the fulsome nature? And see, when God says, I want you to break every yoke, you see that word yoke? Comes up twice. What is it? It's the yoke of oppression. What was the yoke? It was a big bar that was put on beasts that made them beasts of burden. What is it talking about? It's talking about social structures. It's not just enough. You're supposed to speak up on their behalf. You're supposed to break the yoke. What does that mean? Not just do charity. You've got to change the neighborhood. You've got to change the school. You've got to try to change the family. God is commanding Christians, believers, to care about social structures. So there is the importance, and there is the fulsome nature of it. Anybody feeling guilty yet? It won't be enough. And here's my last point. Where do you get the ability to do justice? Americans have a tendency to think, well, if we can, if we can just come up with a plan, if we can get the machinery in place, the right social policies, the right tax system, the right technology, if we can just get the machinery right, we can deal with poverty and injustice. That has never been the, real, the main problem. Beatrice Webb, wonderful lady, brilliant lady. Uh, she was a woman who uh, was probably the main architect, one of the main architects of the British welfare state. She lived from the late 1890s into the you know, 1940s. And, uh, but at one point, she was looking back at her diary. And in the 1890s, she wrote this in her diary. She said, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Most of the European intellectuals who were trying to create a more just social system in the late 1800s and early 1900s believed in the, that human nature was basically good. If we just got the machinery in place, things would get a lot better. But then, I guess, in around 1925, this is what she wrote. I now realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little you can count on changing them by any change in the social machinery. And now listen to this. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse in the human heart. How do you do that? See, the problem is not just the machinery. The problem is that we don't want to do it. We don't do it. Why not? 
Well, here's what will not work and here's what will work. Notice in verse two, God's critique, verse two and three, he's critiquing a kind of religion. In verse two and three, the people have been doing all the things that they thought they should do. They've been keeping the Sabbath. They've been fasting at Yom Kippur. They're doing all the things they should do. And then they said, well, why haven't you heard us? See, we're doing everything, but you're not blessing us. That's not the deal. The deal is if we're religious enough and if we're good enough and if we're ethical enough, you kind of come through, you got to prosper us. We don't quite know what they meant when they say, why haven't you heard us? But it means that God's not answering their prayers. Maybe God wasn't prospering them economically or something like that. They're saying, hey, we're doing all these good things. Why aren't you helping us? And that is the very thing that God's criticizing. And what he's criticizing is an understanding of religion, an understanding of morality that's basically self-interested. In fact, let me press you on something here. When he says you exploit your workers, the, the people knew that on the Sabbath day and at all these festivals, they weren't supposed to work. But the Mosaic law actually said, not just you shouldn't work, but your workers shouldn't work, and even your animals shouldn't work. You should be limiting your profit-taking. Don't try to get a little bit of extra profit out of the Sabbath. Everybody's off. This was considered compassionate and just action. You're the owner. You shouldn't take off if your people aren't taking off. So it was actually in the law that not only they should be taking off, but their workers should be taking off, but they weren't letting their workers off. Why? Here's the issue religion or even a secular morality. Listen, listen, I'll say this carefully. Religion or even a secular morality that tries to get you to do justice out of a sense of duty and out of self-interest will always fail. If you say to people, well, Jerry Lewis, every year, 45 years, did the muscular dystrophy telethon. Remember that? Some of you don't. But every year, what he used to say is, if you give money to this great cause, then after you've made your donation, you can look in a mirror and you can tell yourself, I am a good, compassionate person. And see, basically, not just religion, but any secular morality that says, well, if you do all these things, if you give money to the poor, and if you go to church, if you do all these things, then you can feel good about yourself. Basically, you're using selfishness to try to get people to be unselfish, that's not curbing the bad impulse, as Beedra Webb says. You got that? You're using selfishness. All you do when you just say to people, now you gotta help out of shame, otherwise I'll shame you. You know, our culture right now is trying to get people to do justice because I'll shame you if I don't on Twitter. Anything that tries to get people to do justice out of duty or out of self-interest, in the end, that creates a sense of entitlement, not humility. And they will always just do the minimum. And they'll only just do it for a while. And they'll only just do what they have to do just to get by. Duty is not. Self-interested duty is not going to change the human heart. Well, what will? Here's what's interesting. When you get to verse 13 and 14, there's a vision being given to you. Look at the vision. It says, verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and doing as you please on my holy day, okay, because the Sabbath is a delight. You're not doing it because you have to, you're doing it because you want to. You're not just doing the minimum, you're doing the maximum. You're understanding the Sabbath, you see as a delight to do everything that the Sabbath uh, entails. 
And by the way, verse 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord. There's an approach to justice in which God is a means to an end. There's an approach to justice in which I'm just trying to please the God who is an end in himself. There's an approach to justice that says, if I do this, then think good things will happen to me. There's an approach to justice that says, I just have a vision of what God is and who he is and what he wants, and I just want to please him, and I do it not because there's something in it for me, other than just the satisfaction of knowing I'm pleasing him. These are two different approaches, of course. It's interesting, Elaine Scarry, of all people, she, she teaches at Harvard and she's got a background in English and philosophy, wrote a book some years ago called On Beauty and Being Just. And even though it was, she, on the basis of Plato and Augustine, she made this case. She said, you'll never be just simply because you have to. You can only be just if you get a vision of beauty that decenters the self, gets you out of yourself, keeps you from always worrying about being selfish. She says beauty lifts you out of yourself and it moves you toward being just. Illustration I got from there was this. She said, imagine a college student who's listening to Bach to get a good grade on art appreciation class in order to get a degree, in order to get a good job. Okay, so you're listening to Bach in order to make money. It's a, Bach is a duty. But what happens if a few years later you realize you love Bach and you just love the music? And next thing you know, you find instead of listening to Bach in order to make money, you're actually spending a lot of money in order to listen to Bach. Why? Because the music is an end in itself. It's not a duty anymore. It's a beauty. And she says, if, if justice is a duty, you only do the minimum. You always cut corners. And you always have a sense of entitlement to basically what's in this for me. But if you have a vision of something, if there's a vision of something beautiful, she says that takes you out of yourself and then you, she believes it makes you able to be just because you're not thinking about yourself anymore. Well, many people have been critical of her because they've said, like, what? Are you talking about Bach makes you more just? They said, uh, you know, a lot of the Nazis loved Bach and Mozart and people like that. And so, I, look, I'm not going to get into that, but here's what I do know. She's right at one point. I don't know about beauty in general, but I do know this. There's one beauty that will make you just. You know how in the Old Testament it says God identified with the poor? In the New Testament, God literally identified with the poor in Jesus Christ when he was born in a manger, in a feed trough born to a poor set of parents, came into this world and had, you know, at the end of his life only had one possession, his robe. And they cast lots for that and he, was, and he was crucified naked. At the end of his life, he had to ride in on a borrowed donkey to Jerusalem. He had to have a meal in a borrowed room. He was even buried in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. He identified with the poor. God identified with the poor, literally identified with the poor. Not only that, but when he was put to death because of that mistrial of justice, that court in which it was a total mistrial of justice, he not only identified with the poor, he identified with the oppressed, the millions of people in this world who have been disenfranchised or tortured or killed unjustly. Some years ago, there was a woman, African-American woman. I read about this in Time Magazine over 12 years ago. And she had kind of lost her faith and she was really bitter about the injustice she experienced in this country. And she was actually in a, a course in a graduate school in which they were studying Christian doctrine. She wasn't all that excited about it. But suddenly one day as she was studying about the crucifixion, it hit her. 
Christianity says not just that God came to earth and died for us on the cross, but he died with us. He suffered with us. He didn't just suffer for us. He suffered with us. And she said, oh my goodness, Jesus Christ knew what it was like to be under the lash, literally under the lash. John Stott said, in a world of injustice, how could I believe in God without the cross? How could I believe in a God who never experienced, who was immune to injustice? Now, there's not a religion on the face of the earth that believes, except Christianity, that God was subject to injustice. But that's exactly what that African-American woman saw was a beauty. And what was the beauty? The cross. How could that be a beauty? Here's the, the beauty. God became a victim of injustice for us. God became poor and oppressed so that we could be rich toward him. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was fulfilling justice. He was taking the penalty we deserve, or put it like this. Jesus Christ was saying, I, who deserved vindication and justice, on the cross, I got condemnation. I deserve vindication and justice but I got condemnation. So you, who deserve condemnation, could get vindication and pardon. I deserved vindication. I got condemnation. So you who deserve condemnation could be pardoned. And when I see God, and when she saw God, not just suffering for us, but with us, not just becoming poor and oppressed so we could be rich to God, there's the beauty Will that take you out of yourself? Absolutely. Two things that I can see keep me from being just. One is I can feel superior. I can feel like, well, I've worked very hard for this. But see, salvation by grace is how can you feel superior to anybody? You're just a sinner saved by grace. The other thing that can keep us from being just is we feel empty. We say, I need my status. I need my worth. I like to feel that I've worked very hard for. In other words, I'm empty, but not. Once you receive the salvation in Jesus Christ, you're full. That you don't need the status. You don't need to hold on to your place. You don't need to hold on to your wealth. You don't need to hold on to your status. If you see the beauty of that, of God becoming poor and oppressed in order that we might become rich to God, here's the irony. It's grace that turns you into something, someone who does justice. It's knowing that you did not receive your just desserts, but on the cross, Jesus Christ received them for you. It's that experience of grace that humbles you and affirms you to the place where you can go out into the world and do justice. Why? Because the beauty, the beauty of it. It's John Stott who said, I couldn't believe in God if it wasn't for the cross. In a world so filled with injustice, how could I believe in a God who was immune to it? Let's pray. Our Father, it will not be guilt. It will not be shame that could ever lead us to do justice. We want to be a people so enraptured by your beauty, the beauty of what you did for us on the cross, that all these laws of social justice would be a delight and that we would not be obeying them to get something from you, but just to please you and also to realize the beautiful vision of a new heavens and new earth. So we pray, Father, that you would turn us into not just a church, but a body of Christ in the city of New York that cares like this, as you do, for the defenseless, for the marginalized, and for the poor. And then, Lord, how much greater of a city it'll be 
if there's thousands and thousands more people changed by the gospel grace into agents of justice. We ask for that. We pray for it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.